0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us.
1: In the previous program, I was talking about the name of God, the name of God that our God gave Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. In most translations, that name is described as, I am, or I am who I am. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is a poor translation. The proper translation is to translate that in the future tense, that he will be who he will be. And there is a big difference between I am who I am and I will be who I will be. And I was explaining a little bit about those differences in the previous program. But in this program, I would just like to proceed and talk about the importance of the name of God and why people would want to have a name why they would want to have a name for their God. And I personally believe that the main reason why people really want to have a name for their God is because names historically, during certain segments of history, they have historically been a representation of a person's character. In other words, who a person is can be described by their name. During other times of history, like the time period that we are in right now, a person can have a name and yet it has nothing to do with who they are. But during other times of history, people would have a name or their name would be changed even in order to describe events that happened in their lives or to describe decisions that they had made or to describe their present occupation. The name of an individual was often a description of their occupation. It was a description of the things that they did, and that was one way that a person could be known. If you want to know someone, you can ask them, what are the kinds of things that you do? What are the kinds of things that you have done? And this is a way that people identify other people. And as I was explaining in the previous program, sometimes people are identified by the worst sin that they have ever committed, And it's very unusual for a person to want to be remembered or want to be identified continually with their past sin. But in many ways, people are known in that way. What I would like to focus on in this program, though, is to talk about the names of God a little bit. And then I'd like to talk about what is known as the tetragrammation, which is another attempt to identify the name of our God. Now, of course, the conclusion that I gave in the previous program was that He will be who he will be. In other words, this is a living God who is actively participating, and there is no way that you can explicitly define him. And that's something that I need to bring out in this program, that the reason why he would describe himself in the future tense is because there is no way to explicitly define this God, the God who has created all things. Your God cannot be explicitly defined, he can only be spoken of, he can only be described in small ways with an understanding that these descriptions are incomplete, and that it is acceptable to recognize that we have an incomplete description of our God. And so to say that he will be who he will be is a way of saying that he cannot be explicitly defined, you cannot put him in a box and say that he fits right here in this box. It's not possible to do that. And that is an inherent or an implied meaning behind the title or behind the description of he will be who he will be. But sometimes people continue into the scriptures and they see things like the names of God. And I think these are wonderful things to look into. It is a very good study to spend time looking into the different ways that our God has been named By other people. For example, he is known as the God who is almighty. That in comparison with other gods, he is mightier than all of them. He definitely has ultimate authority and he will pass the final judgment when this world comes to an end. He will do that. He will execute that. He is mightier than anyone, mightier than all, and he will be, he will continue. To be God Almighty, this is not something that describes who he once was or even necessarily or only who he is, but also who he will be in an absolute sense. He will always be the one who is the Almighty. He is also known as the God who is our peace, and he will always be our peace. Now, in the Old Testament, when this was written, It was normally understood that this peace was a peace that he would provide the people in the land of Israel. And according to the Old Covenant, that was what he offered. He said, if you will obey, if you will repent from your sins and obey his commandments, then he will allow you to live in peace. But in the New Covenant, he has provided something else. He has provided something different that he never offered, that he never provided, that he never suggested in the Old Covenant, and this is the peace that we can experience in our own hearts. We have peace with Him in our hearts. We can have peace in this world in our hearts because of who He is to us, because of what He has done for us, because of what He is doing for us, yes, because of what He has already given to us, yes, but also because of what He will give, and we live in anticipation of what he is going to give in terms of an understanding of the world that we are a part of, an understanding of how he sees it, in terms of what he is going to reveal about himself, in terms of how we are going to understand the world that we are a part of, in terms of our purpose and our participation and the works that he is preparing for us to walk in in the future, that this is a way to understand our God, that we live in peace knowing that he is involved, in many ways we can live in peace, because we know he is participating, he is living, he is not a God who is out there somewhere in the cosmos looking down to us through some kind of heavenly telescope to see us duke it out amongst ourselves, and he is also not a God who is in control of absolutely everything, but he has decided to allow the people who are here to make decisions about what they are going to do or what they are not going to do. And in the midst of that, he is also going to participate while allowing everyone to make their own decisions at the same time. And he will not interfere with people's ability to make choices about what they are going to do or think or what they are not going to do. He is not going to interfere with that because the cost would be too great. He has an opportunity right now for people. People also have this opportunity. He has an opportunity to have a people to turn to him who will turn to him because they want to. And if he interferes with that in any way whatsoever, he will take away from the value that he can obtain a people who would pursue him, who would want to know him because they want to. Not because they have to, and not because they have no alternative, and not because he has presented himself in such an overwhelming way that they cannot think otherwise, but because they really want to know their God. That is something that he has right now that I believe he will never interfere with. He is the God who is our shepherd. He has always shepherded us. He is shepherding us now, and he will shepherd us in the future. And knowing him as this name is a description. It is a way of understanding him. A small way, but a way nonetheless. So these names can be used as a way of describing our God in some small and simple ways. But when we do consider him from these perspectives, we must always remember the future tense. We must always remember the future tense because we are living And he is living also. And so while we can have a great appreciation for what he has done and how he has related to people in the past, and we can certainly appreciate and enjoy how he is relating to us now, it is how he will relate to us in the future that is the excitement of the anticipation of what he is going to show us about who he is as we live, as we grow. He who is living relates to us as living beings, as living people at the same time. He is the God who sees, not just a God who sees some things, but he is a God who can see anything, anything that he wants to see. And in the future, he will see what he will see. And if there is something that he decides not to see, we can trust. We can trust him. And I know that can be very difficult for many people to trust their God. But I believe That we can trust him to see those things that he needs to see. And those things that he doesn't want to see, I'm confident that he will make a good choice concerning those things that he will turn away from. That this God does not have to always look upon sin if he doesn't want to. He knows it's happening, it's not as if he doesn't, but I do not believe that he has to see things that he probably doesn't want to see that he can turn away, and that we can trust our God concerning that. But this is a future revelation. This is a revelation in the future about the character and the nature and the being of our God. And this is something that each individual person will grow to understand as he reveals himself in these ways. He is a God who provides, and sometimes I'm sure some of us would wish that he would provide in different ways, but he is a God who will provide. Provide what? I don't know. But whatever he does provide, we can trust him as God. We can trust him that he will provide all that he feels and that he believes he should provide. And if he does not provide all that we want him to, we can trust him concerning that. That even if we starve and die, no matter how our life might be ended, even then he will provide. He provides us with a place in the kingdom of heaven. This life is a temporary life. It is not heaven. You are not going to be here forever. And I don't know about you, but I personally am very thankful for that. So he is a God who provides and he will provide. But this is something that we experience. This is something that will be revealed to us as we interact with him He who is our God. Now, in this program, what I would really like to focus on is not these names that people know him by and can look at in the scriptures and study. While I do think that's a worthy study, I'm not going to pursue that right now. Instead, what I would like to pursue and what I would like to talk with you about is another name, and that is the name that is described with four letters in the Hebrew language. If you were to go throughout the scriptures, you will see that our God is referred to by using four letters, a four-lettered word, and the letters are Hebrew letters, the letters are yud hey, vav hey, and these letters have been used to describe our God. Now, unfortunately, these letters are consonants. There are no vowels in this word. In the Hebrew language, the vowels were never recorded, and there were a number of reasons for that. Later on in history, there was a vowel system that was developed and it was finally codified somewhere between the 7th and the 9th century A.D. There is a vowel system that we can utilize today. However, in the past, there was no vowel system for the Hebrew language in written form. There were vowels, they just weren't written. And so when we saw these words, we had to know the vowels that would be attached to each one of these consonants and so that we could pronounce a word. But when it came to this word, this word that was constructed with these consonants, there was no way that we could add vowels according to the rules of Hebrew grammar. There is no way to add vowels to that word. Now, many people have attempted to do this in modern times. Many people have come up with all kinds of different variations to try to describe this name or to try to pronounce this name. But the truth is, is that this name is unpronounceable. That is the truth. That this word that was used by Moses, Moses originally wrote this word. When he wrote this word, he wrote a word that there was no way it could possibly be pronounced. Now, using the rules of other languages, yes, you can add vowels to these consonants and come up with pronounceable words. Don't get me wrong. It's not as though there is a physical limitation. I'm only saying that there is a linguistic limitation. And I believe that this was an intentional limitation in order to ensure that there is no way that we could pronounce the name of God. And I'll explain that more in just a moment. But first, I would like to explain that many people have come to a number of conclusions, but all these conclusions are wrong. No matter what, because that is not how this word was written, and this is not the nature of the Hebrew language. So when people come up with things like Yahweh, or Yahweh, or Yehovah, or my favorite of course is Jehovah, as if that is the official name of God, but there is no J in Hebrew. I love to use that with some groups of people where they claim that Jehovah is the official pronunciation of the name of God. And if you say Jehovah, then you're talking about the true God of the Bible. And then I ask them, did you know that there is no J sound at all in Hebrew? And they may say yes or they may say no, but either way, even if they recognize that that's the truth, they generally just don't care. They're just not interested in that. They don't really care at all because they have their beliefs and that is what they worship. They actually worship their beliefs, not the truth. They're not concerned about the truth. They're only concerned about their beliefs and what other people have told them. But people have come up with many attempts. People have made many attempts to try to pronounce this word. This word is what we call the tetragrammaton. In order to describe the four letters, that is tetra and the grammation, which is the grammatical concerns and issues of this word. And I'm telling you that it is an unpronounceable word. And so what did the Jews do? How did we deal with this? Did we just ignore this? You think that we just ignored this for hundreds of years, for thousands of years? We just paid no attention and that we came up and utilized one of these pronunciations in order to at least say something? no. It has always been known in the Hebrew culture throughout the centuries. The rabbis have spoken of this since long before the time of Christ. People have recognized that this is an unpronounceable word, and so the way that we resolved it, there is a way that we resolved this, that way was either to say that this is the name, whenever we saw that word, we would always say Hashem, which is to just simply say the name. Ha is the definite article. Shem is the word for name. The name. We would see the word and then we would say the name because there was no way to pronounce the word anyway. We knew it was the name of God, so we just said it was the name. That was a simple way of handling that. Another way that we handled that, different schools of thought handled these things differently, but another school of thought handled this by taking the vowels from another word and putting these vowels onto this word. What they did was they took the vowels from the word Adonai. The word Adonai is a word that means my Lord. It is possessive in the sense that it is my personal Lord. They took those vowels and they stuck those vowels, or they wrote those vowels, on top of the tetragrammation, on top of this word that described the name of God. And so when we saw that word, we would remember to say Adonai, my Lord. So either we would say Hashem, the name, or we would say Adonai, my Lord. And we would write those vowels. If you were to check the modern Torahs that are written with the vowels included with the consonants, you'll always see these vowels written there. But those vowels are not written so that we would attempt to pronounce those consonants with those vowels. Nobody does that. Those vowels were written to remind us to say a different word using those vowels, that those vowels reminded us to say Adonai whenever we saw that word. Instead, what people have done is they have assumed that those vowels were originally part of that word. And when people do that, they come up with things like Yahweh, Yehovah, Yahweh, things like that. That's where these things come from. They are attempts to use the vowels that come from another word to pronounce a word that is described by consonants that were specifically assembled in a way to ensure that we would never be able to pronounce the name of God. So that's the history of the Tetragrammation and the Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, the yahweh Jehovah, jehovah kind of stuff that people get into. That's where it comes from, and so there is no way to pronounce this word, and so how do you handle that? Well, I handle it in different ways. If I'm around rabbis or if I'm around religious Jews, I'll say either Adonai or Hashem, just because that's the language that they understand. When I'm around people who speak English, I use the word God. That is an English word that is a descriptive word that people understand. They know who I'm talking about. So to me, the issue is not really an issue of trying to identify the correct pronunciation. To me, the issue is just simply, can you identify a word that will describe the person who you are talking about so that you can have clear communication with the individuals who you are speaking with? And if you can accomplish that, you have accomplished great things. And be thankful, because in many circumstances, it's difficult just to get that far. Now, another very important, or what I consider to be valuable historical thing to understand concerning this, is that the Pharisees were also very interested in the name of God. This is not a subject that has modern context, but no historical context. People have been interested in this for a long time. You know, there have been many groups that have claimed even that they know the true name of God. The Masons are very well known for that. The people who participate in the Masonic Lodges, who are members of Masonry, that religion is mainly built on this belief that they have the true and correct name of God, and I know what they say to each other, and it isn't. It just isn't the true name of God. It is the name of another God that I don't want to have anything to do with, but people believe that that is the true name of God, and they can build an entire cult or an entire religion off of that belief. But this is an issue that has a long and glorious history to it. It really is a very important issue, especially within rabbinical Judaism, and it always has been. It's been a very important discussion that has been presented as far as I know of throughout the course of history. One of the reasons why this is of importance to many people is because people want to ensure that they never pronounce the name of God. The reason why the Pharisees were so interested in never pronouncing the name of God... You see, in modern times, people are concerned with wanting to know the correct name of God. In Christian circles, people are wanting to pronounce the correct name of God. But in rabbinical Judaism, in the historical rabbinical Judaism, people wanted to ensure that they did not pronounce the name of God. And this is why. The reason why is because there was the risk of blaspheming his name. That's why the subject was so important, especially during the time of Jesus. In fact, for the 400 years before the time of Christ, from the 5th century B.C., actually, you could even say from the late 6th century B.C., it was of importance all the way during the time of Christ and beyond. It has been a very important subject, but it has always been presented in the context of can we ensure that we do not pronounce his name? That's how this subject has always been addressed in the historical rabbinical Judaism. Because they never wanted to blaspheme his name. They never wanted to use his name in an inappropriate context. They never wanted to curse his name. They wanted to ensure that they would never come within the boundaries of possibly blaspheming their God. And so it was a decision that they would never ever attempt to try to determine what his name really is. Now, I say that in the context, of course, that there would be many discussions about what his name is not and what the pronunciation cannot be. By using these four letters, there have been many discussions, and there always has been, and there always will be many discussions. But because of the way these four letters have been assembled together... There is no way to come up with a pronunciation. And this is the conclusion of these discussions, is that this is in our interest. It is in our interest to not be able to pronounce the name of God, because they believed that the only way you could legitimately commit blasphemy is if you officially use the name of God. And why would this be so important? Because they wanted to ensure that they would never commit blasphemy against God. And so this was the decree. The decree was was that you could never blaspheme God unless you knew the name of God and you used it in your blasphemy. Now, I personally think that this is a very important law that the Pharisees established for themselves. This, of course, was never written in the law of Moses. It's not in the scriptures. This is a Talmudic law. It is a law that the Pharisees established in order to ensure that they would never come within the boundaries of violating the law that was given by Moses, that you are to never blaspheme the name of God. And, of course, the law was given to us in Leviticus chapter 24, beginning in verse 10, where there was the circumstance that someone was cursing the name of God when he was having a conflict with someone else, and the Lord said that this person needed to be put to death. So if you consider this, consider Jesus, consider the circumstances with Jesus when he was accused of committing blasphemy. He was accused of committing blasphemy several times. But according to the law of the Pharisees, at no time did he commit blasphemy because he did not know the official pronunciation of the name of God. No one knew what it was. And they didn't want to know what it was. Even if somebody said it, how would somebody know that they said it if they don't know what it is either? There is no way for that to be accomplished. And so no one could have ever been condemned for committing blasphemy, according to Pharisaical Judaism. No one could have ever been condemned for that because it was impossible to commit it Because it was impossible, first of all, to know what the true name of God is, and even if they did, no one else knew what the true name of God was, and so they wouldn't know if what the person said was the actual name, or if they were just making it up, or if they didn't know any better, or even if they did, no one would truly know. No one would be able to bear witness, and no one would be able to hear the witness. This is an important part of rabbinical Judaism, especially during the time of the Lord Jesus which is something that I can't help but remember every time I hear them accusing him of blasphemy. To me, that's an opportunity for humor more than anything, because according to their beliefs, there was no way for anyone to commit blasphemy. And so, again, for someone to say that the correct pronunciation of the name of God is Yahweh or Yehovah or Jehovah or anything that sounds like that, that person is attempting to derive a pronounceable name from vowels that were taken from one word and put onto another word, and that word was written specifically in such a way that there is no way to pronounce the word, so there is no way to pronounce the name of God.
0: You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net.